Colin's Last Stand Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. Knockback, in addition to the interview podcast series Fireside Chats and the weekly YouTube show dedicated to video games called SideQuest, is fan-funded over at patreon.com slash Stand. and without you, none of these shows would exist. If you like Knockback or any of what Colin's Last Stand does, please consider going to Patreon and showing your support. You can even get cool perks in return, like early access to shows, the ability to vote on future show topics, exclusive Q&As, and much more. Thank you for believing in Colin's Last Stand. Now, on to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. Dagan. Hello. How are you? Doing well, my friend. Hey, everybody. Hi, guys. Dig, today's episode mm-hmm. of Knockback I'm excited about because it's about one of my very favorite properties in, in my very, uh, you know, as the nerds might call it, the IP. It's one of my very favorite uh, <laughs> IP in anything, in, in books, in television, in games, etc. And it's the Twilight Zone, nice. the classic late 50s to uh, early to mid 60s. Sci-fi. Yes. Yes. Inspired, of course, by the Tower of Terror. It, at uh, Disney World, uh, the, which inspired, of course, the Twilight Zone television show. That's actually not true. Don't get mad at me and tweet at me. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, I, sometimes I'm so dry and sarcastic with the things I say that some people, sometimes people, you should have left serious. that. You should have yeah. left. Yeah. yeah, I really would look forward to the uh, seven thousand the, d- the deluge of tweets. Yeah, the flack, <laughs> the uh, salvo of uh, nonsense that would come at me. But the Twilight Zone, to me, is this. This television series, beautiful five-season uh, television series, black and white, all really run by one man, Rod Serling, and would integrate many writers, many directors, many uh, producers, and of course, actors and actresses that are fantastic, some very famous, and some famous writers too, including our boy Ray Bradbury, yes. who wrote an episode, and you know Burgess Meredith obviously is an act, a famous actor who, all the way up through Rocky, was, and, and beyond was uh, winning awards and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Come and, on, Rock! And uh, he's from the most famous episode, I think, of Twilight Zone, which we'll obviously talk about. I'm sure we can't avoid that. But yes, what do you think uh, when you think of the Twilight Zone? What comes to mind for you? Because to me, it's 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 just super inspirational. Yeah. As a creative person. Yeah. You well, one of the first things I think of, obviously, is you because you really do have a a love affair with the Twilight Zone. Even from a very young age, we both had a huge impact on both of us even of different generations but yeah it makes me think of it makes me think of that and it makes me think of also my really a big inspiration to me and I know you, yourself too as far as writing goes um it was really had an impact on me as a writer not not a lot of people know that I that I write and we could get more into that but I'm actually it's actually probably my one of my biggest I, I consider my writing comes a lot easier to me than art does, even though I do art for a living, obviously. Which is super uh, interesting because you're such a prolific creator in well, volume. Thank you. You know, thank of, you. Thank you. Of great things in art, so that actually says a lot about your ability to write, I guess. Thank you. Yeah, I really writing is something that comes easy to me, and get more into that. But yeah, that the Twilight Zone had a big impact on me in that sense, for sure. And just as as far as well, we'll get we'll get more into it, but definitely a it, one of the biggest probably impacts upon myself as far as writing goes sure so i I totally agree with you there and i think you know to kind of catch people up if you've not watched the twilight zone or unfamiliar with it it's this sort of you know sci-fi series at a time very embryonic stage of television after lucy and all that kind of stuff but it was it was when people were still figuring out even 10 years in or so of network television what television would be what tv could be 
if you read and look at a lot of early television and study it a little bit, you realize that a lot of this stuff is, you know, these are adapted from plays. A lot of these things are adapted from radio broadcasts in the in the interwar period um, and certainly in the post-war period when it was really popular to have, you know, the the, the Orson Welles style dramas on on you know, your radio that you would all tune into. So television was still in this very experimental stage, and we kind of take it for granted of what it is today, but we've even seen it evolve in our own lives. Think about how the genesis of stuff like the real world and, and road rules and stuff like that on the on MTV in the 90s proliferated into what we would call today reality television, right? which wasn't a thing at all 20 years ago. That was not a thing at all. Good point. Yeah. So yeah. it's not that television hasn't adapted and evolved over time. Of course it has. Sure. Television today is, you know, I was watching, uh, I used to love the History Channel when I was a kid, obviously. And in the 90s and in the or in very early 2000s, History Channel was awesome. The History Channel was excellent. And it was all about Real, you know, some people used to call it like the Hitler Channel and stuff like that, and all because it was why because it was always about World War II. Oh, okay. It was always about you know, so but it was real war, yeah. documentaries and series about substantive things in history. And the same thing with the Discovery Channel, which was all about science and technology and Animal Planet for you know nature and all this. And then these you know now you turn on history and it's like ice road truckers, and I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? So. But back in the day, they they hit a goldmine by making and I think democratizing science fiction for the first time. And there's yeah. an interesting corollary here, I think, Dagan, and I don't know if you agree with this. Okay. We've talked in the past, and I think we've even talked on the series, about how nerd nerddom, as it were, were, is mainstream. It wasn't mainstream, certainly, when you were a kid, and it wasn't no. mainstream really when I was a kid. Oh I mean, God, I... No. I I was a bit of an outcast compared to my peers, and and we there was others like me reading Toy Fair at lunch, or <laughs> right. you know, bringing instruction manuals for my games, or sneaking in my my Game Boy in a class and trying yeah. to play it in the back. And yeah, yeah, Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead and all of these kinds of things being mainstream even ten years ago is unthinkable. So we have a different viewpoint of what that all means, what science fiction means, with the proliferation of Star Wars today and all that kind of stuff. But in the fifties and into the early sixties. Science fiction was extremely niche, and you were extremely dorky if you were getting those pulp novels or if you were getting the short story anthologies that were right. coming in the mail every month right, or two. Right. So this was an experiment that went great. Um, I think it was CBS that did Twilight Zone, and you know it all worked out. And I think it was the first taste that a lot of people got, and for some people, the only taste they got of experimental storytelling of science fiction and of this sort of ethereal feeling that anything is possible, any story can be told, and nothing is too fantastic or too unusual. Absolutely. What do you think of all that? I love that. I love that. Yeah, visions of George McFly, right? Sure. Yeah, it's striking, actually, playing off of what you said. Like, to think most people had a television for the first time in their homes, what, between the late 40s and very early 50s? Yeah, I would say even I would say even into the mid-50s, it was right. more uncommon than common to have a television. That's amazing. They were expensive, they were huge, and they And were this heavy. show came five years later. Mm-hmm. So ahead of its time. I mean, we'll get more into the ins and outs of that, but it's a, it's really striking how ahead of this time this show was. Not just in storytelling and sci-fi, but just in uh, watching a couple episodes, uh, getting ready for the show earlier today. Like it's you, re, you're reminded like of especially like the camera work, the cinematography. A lot of these things were obviously storyboarded and really thought out first. It's it's really very cinematic and striking. Some of the things they were doing on this show, they weren't doing in feature films at the time. Right. We were watching an early episode. I can't even remember the name of it about the... the oh, I should say, by the way, before yeah. we even get into this, if yes. you've not seen The Twilight Zone or you're unfamiliar with it, it's available, the entire thing on Netflix. So if you have a Netflix streaming subscription, 
I would actually turn this episode off and, and listen to it later and really see if you can. Good point. Yeah. Because we're going to talk and spoil. Um, uh, you know, there are a lot of episodes. Yeah. Well, well over 100. And you want to watch these unspoiled. Yeah, exactly. So if you've not seen them or you, or you care about that sort of thing, then I would not even listen to this episode. So I'm saying that before I even describe the episode that I'm going to describe. I love that. But there's an episode in early, early in the run. I think it's a first season episode. We were just watching about a woman who's driving cross country. And yeah. She is followed by this hitchhiker. The hitchhiker ends up being death, and and uh, she is end up dying, you know, being dead. And this is actually there's actually several episodes like this, including one I want to talk about in a little while. Yeah. But the hitchhiker, the, yeah, the hitchhiker, episode. right? Exactly. And for me, I feel like you can see so many shades of Twilight Zone to this day. And I, the two, I know that one of the people I want to mention of the two that I uh, major influences I see using Twilight Zone today, yeah, would actually refer to Hitchcock as a bigger influence, but certainly M. Night Shyamalan's uh, approach to science fiction and to twist storytelling, twist theme storytelling, meaning that something is not as it seems, which is Twilight Zone's whole shtick. Yes. That it never, it never, there's always a twist ending. And so you can see that kind of stuff in, you know, signs or the sixth sense and shit like that with M. Night. But um, obviously with Black Mirror being so popular today, yeah. Black Mirror is the Twilight Zone. It, it, like I hate when people act like, well, it's, you know, it's it's it references the Twilight Zone, or it kind of is like the Twilight. No, I'm like, no, it is the Twilight Zone. Yeah. It's the Twilight Zone made in the 21st century with a budget and beautiful cameras and you know color storytelling. Although one of the best episodes of of Black Mirror is actually in black and white. Right. And for me, that's what I think makes this episode important to make because I know there's a lot of Black Mirror fans in this audience, rightfully so, because it's a fantastic show. Yeah. But you have to understand that this show. That you love so much now was inspired by something that was, you know, 60 years old. Very clearly. Yeah. So I hate when, you know, I, I actually didn't watch. Black Mirror came out in 2011. I didn't start watching Black Mirror until like 2014 or something like that. So, wow, did it come out that long? Yeah, ago? in Britain it did. Wow. The first three episodes. So the one about the Prime Minister, the one about the merits. Okay. And the one about the the eye wow, contraption that everyone can, can record their stuff. Those are all old. And no one ever was like... It's the we know you love the Twilight Zone. It's the Twilight Zone. No one ever said that to me. So I just if they just said that, yeah, it would be like comparing something to the road for me or something where I'd be like, oh, okay. If you just describe, even if you're lying to me, I'm still gonna check it out. So yeah, I think that makes this episode relevant to the audience, and I think that I and not only that, that I, I think that I would. It's like people that never saw Seinfeld. That's really exciting to me because they have this whole nine seasons in Seinfeld to, to, to jump into. You almost like, get jealous. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, wow, that's so, it's, I'm so envious of that. <laughs> yeah. And there's a certain envy with not having seen Twilight Zone either. It's funny because I think about you because we used to watch separately because you were, we never, we hadn't lived together in many years. Yeah, it's um, but in the, I don't want to say the pre-internet era because that's not true at all, but in the pre-streaming era, the pre-maybe high-speed internet era too, for, in, a, in a way, Twi the way to watch Twilight Zone was on the 4th of July or New Year's because sci-fi, the sci-fi channel, which wasn't always S-Y-F-Y. -Y, I don't know what they were thinking with that. Um, <laughs> strange. Sifi. Uh, <laughs> they would play like they would do like 36, 48, 72 hours straight of the Twilight Zone. And that's how you watched it. Yeah. And so by doing that for years, I think I've seen them all. I mean, I must have seen them all. You had to have. Yeah. Although every once in a while I have a compendium and, and uh, go through the, the list. I'm like, I don't really remember this one, but. So that's how you and I had access to those shows. But yeah. you, you guys are really lucky today that you don't have to kind of jump through those hoops. So, Dagan, do you think a good place to start the conversation would be to, to point out some great episodes or? Yeah, I think so. What? So what? Sure. What? Let me ask you this, because I wrote down. I mean, I, I can write down a bunch of episodes. I, I tried to write down. I think. Let me look at my list here. I wrote down. Okay. I wrote down seven episodes. Okay. That resonate with me. A couple of them are super popular and almost like trite episodes at this point. 
Although I didn't put the tritest episode, which happens to be my favorite, which is, of course, the Burgess Meredith one, Time Enough at Last. Yes. So when you think of the show, what's the episode that comes to mind for you? That actually is the episode that comes to mind for me. And I know we'll talk about more what happens in the episode, spoiler alert. But that is the episode that comes to mind for me. And it's funny because before I started researching for the episode, I never knew this episode was actually based on a short story. Which short stories had a huge impact on upon me as a creative writer, especially when I started to really learn how to write in high school. And this one is based on a short story that Rod Serling then adapted, like a few of the episodes, and actually a few of the episodes I chose as my favorites. Um, it has that very short story feel where there's a slow build, a twist, and just something that inherently stays with you at the end of the story. Not only is it just a cleverly written and the whole theme, the whole, the whole, everything that happens in it is actually a kind of a clever little bit and it lends itself to short storytelling, which I think is maybe the hardest thing to write. Although I never tried to write a novel, so I don't know. I can't compare it to that. Right. But yeah, Time Enough at Last is actually the one episode, although even upon researching for the episode, it, it, it really is one of the, one of the ones that people go to as their favorite, which actually surprised me a little bit because it's not, it's not one of the ones that you would call scary or creepy and i think that is a draw you know an obvious draw for people horror is sort of um you know twilight zone is more of a thriller but horror is always a big thing for people people like to be scared it's not scary but it it's thoughtful it's a it's it's a really thoughtful piece and what it said what what it's saying is thoughtful and um yeah i always just that that episode just resonated with me even among my favorites as probably my favorite it's one of those things because I it is my favorite. It, like it, it has to be my favorite just because I I I it resonates with me so much and I I didn't realize how much other people loved it. Yeah, me until either. until later on. That was like yeah. the one during those holiday runs of twenty four, thirty six, whatever forty eight hours shows where I would always hope to see it because right. I was I was quite enamored with it. I was enamored with it because it takes place under the the backdrop of nuclear war, but also the the. And obviously, the twist at the end is like heartbreaking. Sure, and so dramatic. Yeah, like a flourish. And right, but it's also because uh, Merges Meredith's uh, Merges Meredith Burgess Meredith's portrayal of Henry Bemis, the bank teller, who's the main character in the story, is so good and so believable, and you kind of you want you're rooting for him, and his wife sucks, and the yeah. and his boss is mean to his him, and the title, and the people, the patrons of the bank suck, and. He just wants to read and he's he just wants to be left alone. Yeah. I think we can all relate to that in a way. Sure. Not necessarily all we wanted to read alone for the rest of our lives, but just like the, the idea of like just the world's kind of beating you up and it's not really sinking with you and, yeah. and all of that. And yeah. so I didn't realize, I guess, how culturally impactful that was until I was at New York Comic Con one year. This was probably in 2014, maybe okay. 2013. I remember that one. And there there was like a they were selling Henry Bemis like action figures. Oh, no booth. way. Yeah. And it was awesome. They were expensive. I didn't buy one. I probably should have. Well, like with his glasses and it, it, it was no, reaction it was, or whatever. I don't, I, I don't know what it was. It was be- They were beautifully done. That's amazing. And it was like he had a suit on like a rumpled suit Holy and shit. like the glasses. And I think he came with like two pairs of glasses, the broken glasses and, and like a book. Like what? I think, you know, David Copperfield he came with like a copy of like David Copperfield. You can like hold. Wow. Because that's the book. You have to about. jump on eBay and look for this thing. I saw that and I was like, wow, this <laughs> is uh, I didn't realize that this is a, a cultural touchstone relevant enough at least for this audience at Comic-Con, which I guess isn't a huge surprise in a way, but that was right. when I realized, I was like, wow, this is uh and then you start to read and research and you're like, everyone loves this episode. Yeah. Of the show. Okay. That's so interesting to me. 
Makes sense, though, when you think sure. about it, right? Yeah, sure. Sure. Of course. And again, it's the twist ending. We were talking about kind of the M. Night connection, even though, again, he references Hitchcock much more, which we could do another episode on. But there's that it's that heartbreaking thing where Henry Bemis wants to kill himself and he decides not to. He yeah. finds the gun, I think. And sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like there's this moment of should he, you know, should I commit suicide? And he does it. And then he finds the books and he gets excited. Then he steps yeah. on his glasses. The gun's obviously far away. You can't see. It's like a really it's like this terrible thing happening under a terrible terrible circumstance to a seemingly good person right and it makes it really hard to swallow yes absolutely that's exactly what it is it's such a small thing too it's like this guy gets every this you know this guy is just he just wants to be left alone to read books such a small thing you know and he's he's get trying to get through his day and his boss and his wife who are kind of in his ear and everything he just wants to be left alone to read his books you know this horrible thing happens in a nuclear holocaust he happens to be in the bank safe. Right. So he's the only one that lives and then sees the runes of this library about to kill himself, sees the runes of this library, all these books at his disposal. Now he has all the time in the world and nothing else to do. He's in his glory. And the tiniest thing happens. His glasses break. It's like it's it's small, but so huge and thoughtful, so clever. I think somebody said in, in the compendium in the book you have as I was reading it to research a little bit. That Rod Serling was saying, well, I guess the reaction to the short story was that it was clever, but it was like not, it was, it wasn't, it was forgettable. Right. But in this case, when you brought it to the small screen and actually visually portrayed it in an episode of the show, it had such a, it just had an impact. It just had such a, a huge impact on people. But yeah, it feels like a short story, like just just a small, thoughtful thing that happens at the end that makes this thing tragic. It's not even though it's not it's interestingly enough, right? It's not even the Holocaust that's tragic because you're rooting for this guy. It's like, oh, wow. Now he's all, all the time in the world to read a, read books and no one's going to bother him. Yeah. And, and the triumph, the weird triumph in it, even though it's unspoken, is that his wife's dead and you kind of are happy about it. Right. And you're like, oh, that's fantastic. This guy doesn't have to deal with anybody anymore. The customers, the bank, his bank boss, his wife, you know, but his oh he's but his glasses broke so that is a Uh, that is a great if you so again kind of aimed more towards people that haven't seen the show or are unfamiliar with it or or maybe just you know in passing yeah if you start with that episode i think that you if you like it i think you're gonna like the twilight zone and if you don't like it then i really find it hard to believe you're gonna like anything great point great and that's a season one episode yeah it's an early episode i think it's in like the first six or seven episodes i think yeah you yeah i think you're right um, and actually, my, my favorites are somewhat front-loaded, although not completely. I like their episodes I like in every season. Okay. But, yeah, the, the, the early run, I think, was the most special yeah, for me. Yeah, they felt the most special. Yeah, and that was like in the very late 50s, 59 into 60, when yeah. those were produced and aired. So that that was, again, a turning point in, in television and, and inspirational for a lot of different people. Well, what's another episode that comes to mind for you? Well, you know, Erin, your girlfriend Erin, reminded me of one last night that I hadn't seen in a long time was five characters in search of an exit yes that's one of the ones i've written as well that's a late that's a late episode that's a late episode that's season is that season three i think it's season season three or season four okay yeah that is one of the episodes and i'll let you get into it more but because i haven't watched it in a long time had to catch myself up by reading about it where this was one of the ones that has that the first time you watch it it's going to be 10 times it's it all the, I think all the Twilight Zone episodes hold up because they really were so ahead of their time. If you, especially if you watch it with that lens and that you know realize that realization how far ahead of the, their time these things were, it's it's actually unbelievable. Um, so I think they really do hold up on the whole. But this cat this holds up just in as as far as storytelling goes. 
and you really don't know what's going on with this episode until the very end. It's very minimalist. There's almost no set background setting. It's there's five characters, and what I almost don't want to I almost don't want to say what happens in it. I would say this is you probably agree. Let me know if you do. I think this is one of those episodes that I would like people to watch for themselves. Yes, without absolutely. revealing what happens. Sure. Yeah. It, I think that yeah because you really as you said it's really in the very very late stage very yeah. end that you realize what has been happening in the episode the entire time. What I love about it is what you said that there's no set. It takes place in one what seems to be an empty room with five very disparate characters that don't seem to have anything to do with each other like a ballerina and like a like a soldier right. and a clown. It's very it's a very weird heady episode. And what I liked about it was and and it's a similar reason to what I love about another episode that I want to talk about although that the the other episode goes in a different direction is it doesn't seem to deal with any immediate themes. Like I'm not really sure what the show is what what reason it exists other yeah. than to like make you feel a little tight. It reminds me, I know you haven't seen this one, this episode of Black Mirror yet, but it reminds me a little bit of White Christmas, which is arguably the best episode of Black Mirror in the sense that, and you'll understand this more when you see it, in the sense that like it's just like, oh my God, like this doesn't exist for any reason other than to just make me chronically uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that, that's, that this episode does a really good job of that. Yeah. Of a, a sort of hopelessness. Sure. And, and, and uh, there's nothing, obviously, most Twilight Zone episodes don't have an uplifting ending. Some do. Right. But... Yes, I, I agree with you. I won't say what, what the what the catch is here. No, no. That is a great episode to watch. And nothing resolves. It doesn't, nothing resolves. The characters are in the same situation from the beginning than the end, right? It's just it's just in the storytelling of telling you what this is. Right, exactly. It's it's it, And that's the beauty of short storytelling, I think, generally. Yeah. Is that you don't, I'm not a huge fan of writing short stories. I, I haven't written a short story in a long time. Mostly because short stories are parallel in many ways for me to film. In the sense that you have this two and a half or three hour window, maybe not even, maybe 90 minute window to tell your story. Most of what happens in these people's lives, most of the extraneating circumstances, the most of the days and hours in a person's life are irrelevant to the story being told. And I like that because there's a power, there's an immediacy to it, and it kind of yeah. gets to cut to the chase. But I've taken more towards television serialized storytelling that takes seasons to tell the story and i love that kind of stuff more you so like that's that more format. of like a novelization kind of approach to me and that's the stuff i like to read and that's the stuff i like to try to write yeah well said so there's no right or wrong there no um obviously being a fan of the twilight zone i have some uh, love for this more the more brevity of, of a short right. story storytelling but yes i i i like that these nests these things aren't really important in the sense that you don't need to have the whole backstory. You don't even really need to know what the purpose or point is of what they're trying to tell you. You're just getting a little window and a glimpse into someone's life. Exactly. So that's pretty cool. I I um, I will talk about... I don't know if you know this episode, but it's the one I was referencing when we were talking about Five Characters in Search of an Exit. The After Hours is an, is is like a parallel episode to me. Okay. It's about mannequins in a department store. Do you, have, uh, have you seen this one? Or are you I definitely have seen this one, but I don't remember. To, to, to re, to retell it to me. Tell so me. this is another late episode, I okay. think. Or is it? Yeah, I don't remember. I don't know. Um, And it's about this these mannequins in a department store. And the, the twist at the end is that there's like a woman... Who, this beautiful woman who goes to the department store, buys stuff, and then finds herself trapped in this department store at night. And the mannequins kind of come to life, and she realizes that she's one of them, and that like all the mannequins take turns leaving and living a normal life. Yes. And they each have a month, and she like overstayed her her foray into the real world, and like they've trapped her back in the, in the department store. And it's just this really soul-crushing, sad episode. Yeah. And another one of those tightness episodes where it's like, oh, 
that seems like a horrifying life, horrific life. And they show the department store, all the many floors of the department store during the day as the mannequins are just standing there modeling whatever, you know, jewelry or clothing that they're supposed to be modeling. And then they, and then they all, but they all have personalities and lives and, right. and like reasons to be, but they can't, they can't act on it. So it's like this that. real stifling feeling. I love that. And it reminds me a lot of that episode, five characters in search of an exit as well. I think those two are kind of companions to each other. What other episode do you want to, do you want to bring? Um, there's, there's a few others that are really, really memorable for me. I know we talked about the hitchhiker a little bit and that episode, I would just say briefly, definitely watch it. That's one of the ones that I think it's, I'm not the great. I'm. On, we were talking about this yesterday. So some of the people in our lives, or, or or in our past, that like Grandpa, my wife Helene, where they just knew you. They just see the writing on the wall. They're very good at reading what's being telegraphed and realizing what happens before it's really revealed on screen, which is cool. I'm not very big. I'm not very good at that. I'm not adept at that. But the Hitchhiker is a, is one to watch just for. We were just watching it, and I was reminded. The the sheer cinematic nature of this episode. I mean, the there there's no like you were saying. There's no blue screen in the driving scenes. The, the the driving scenes are actually filmed in the car. A lot of feature films weren't doing that in 1960. And a lot you know? still don't. If you watch sitcoms even today, a lot of even them today, yeah. the kinetic nature of the camera to lend to the storytelling. They didn't just block off shots and put the camera down. There's a lot of panning, a lot of tracking, and it adds to the tension and it adds to the drama. You know, it's just really brilliant. That that episode is just real, real, really brilliant visual storytelling. I would definitely recommend that one. Um, another one that a lot of people know because of Twilight Zone, the movie that came out in the early 80s, 83, I think it came out, was It's a Good Life. And that's the one about, definitely watch this one. I won't spoil this one. But that's the one, if you haven't seen it, about the little boy who seems to be in control of this family, who's going way out of their way to please him and make him happy obviously extremely fearful of this kid yeah it's it's an, it's an amazing and what's episode. really going on that one left a huge impact on me and that one i the interesting thing about this episode is that i saw the, the twilight zone the movie my generation i was nine or ten when that came out that was my introduction to the twilight zone was that movie not even realizing at the time that this is based on the old tv show you know because i probably started watching twilight zone episodes in high school i would say maybe even later than that because i graduated high school in 92 so this movie was actually my introduction to twilight zone um if i had seen episodes earlier than that i i didn't remember so that definitely that one and the one the other one that i would bring up as to round out my top five is the episode that we were just watching before the show that i read about and hadn't seen but sounded so interesting to me was one for the angels about sort of a salesman, a street salesman, call himself a, a, a pitch man, that makes a deal. I'll just put it this way, out of, you know, um, in the nature of not spoiling it. Makes a deal with death to save somebody that he cares about, basically. Starts off as like a very self-preserving, you know, almost like trying to trick death into letting him live and turns into actually a self-sacrificing gesture for somebody that he cares about. I read about the premise... And it seemed like one of those short story sort of formats that appealed to me as far as like no smoke and mirrors, just a cleverly written thing that sort of burrows and drills down into your brain, leaves something there resonating and then gets out and stays with you. And it did. I found this episode and this is actually 
um, indicative of some of the Twilight episodes, Twilight Zone episodes, is that it had almost like a joyful resonance, just in the fact of even though what's happening is kind of dark, the tone is actually kind of uplifting, even before the uplifting ending, and the dialogue was just very well written and very well acted. Yeah, just joyful, I would say almost, which, which is strange. Just the tone was actually sort of positive, sure, and bright, sure, sure. So that would be that would be the episode that rounds it out for me as my, as far as my top five, I think. Yeah, those are those are good episodes, and I feel as if I, I guess I'll touch on one of the more uplifting ones or one of the more neutral ones that I liked since you brought that one up because that one yeah. is a feel good episode. It is and really all the way through, like you said. There's nothing really sinister about it at all. No, the acting is good. Mister Bookman, I think, is the main character's name. Yeah, he's like a great. It's a great, great character actor and. The death is played really well, and and it's 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 twisted on its head. So it's actually a really unique and unusual episode of Twilight Zone because usually they're much more sci-fi based, and they're yeah. much more uh, like there's just something nefarious about them. Yeah, or I love the guy who plays Death, and I don't he he's so reminiscent of Rod Serling himself. Yeah, he is. I don't know who the actor is, but he's wonderful. Yeah, he was great, and I like how they have different renditions of, of Death throughout the the you know. Yeah, that comes episodes. up a lot. Yeah, I mean that came is. up twice in just my top five picks, actually. Yeah, and it, so. I mean it's it's a thing that's it's it's somewhat commonly uh, approached, I guess. The the one that I come that c- brings me to the same place is uh, a stop at Willoughby, okay. which is a a weird episode about this guy who works and like his boss is on his ass and he's just so tired of his life and he takes a train and commutes presumably from New York City to maybe Connecticut or Long Island or something and he just falls asleep and every. When he falls asleep, he goes to this dreamland where he's like dropped at this fictional stop called Willoughby in like the 1880s. And, okay, and everyone likes him and knows his name, and and like he then he wakes up and he finds himself back in like his in his like shitty life again. And I don't he, know and that then I've he falls seen back this asleep one. and goes back into this into this like tr- this place where yeah everyone's you know it's it's like a it's like Cheers. You know? I love that. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, I love that premise. That's a good premise. So it's like not one of those ones where it's like wow what a twist, but it was one of those ones where it was uh, more about. Fe- not feeling good, but feeling a different sort of feeling that you would get out of most episodes of Twilight Zone, which I think is what makes it resonate. And yeah. I what, that's what makes it special. Yeah, good point. There are a few more episodes that I think are worth touching on. We were talking about death. So the the one that I love most about death as a character or death as like an as like sort of a device yeah. is the episode called Nothing in the Dark about an old woman who is so afraid of dying that she barricades herself in an apartment. Do you, do you know... Do you, re- do you remember this one at all? I don't know. I might be getting this confused with another one. Tell me more about it first. So she lives in like this like decrepit, like it either looks like a first story or basement apartment out over like looking into an alleyway. Okay. And she like has a boy like deliver her groceries and maybe she's on a pension or social security or something. She never leaves her house. Okay. I don't she's think She's afraid I know of dying. One. Okay. And the, the building that she lives in is like being like uh, condemned and... She like tricks. So she thinks that like everyone's trying to get in her house's death and trying to trick her. But this one guy like tricks her into it's like a construction worker to like kind of warn her. But he's not death. But then oh. death like somehow through that comes, you know, comes in and like basically like lulls her away. But it has like sort of a happy ending because she understands that it's not all that scary. That's interesting. So it's one. Of, it's another episode like some of the ones we've talked about where it's it all takes place in one set. It's just it's literally just this apartment. Okay, I this love one, that. This one room apartment. Yeah, so, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier about how a lot of these things seem to be inspired and drawn by plays, about how about yeah. how plays were made on these static sets because they they understood, I mean, television, you know, 
they knew what they were doing and they were yeah. figuring things out. But it was like that was like what was natural. That was their inclination. And you see that actually in a lot of early stuff, whether it's like the Honeymooners or I Love Lucy, where a lot of stuff takes place in like one or two rooms. Like if you think about I Love Lucy, it's like you can actually see it sequentially. Like on the right is the kitchen in the middle is yeah. the living room and on the left are the bedrooms. And then maybe they go to Fred and Ethel's place sometimes or they go to like some other set. But everything kind of takes place in that one static left so to smart. right spot, you know yeah so you can kind of see where they where they might have drawn that from and it was it was one of those it was so clever because on one hand it reminds me of well why was there such a fixation on death as a character like a grim reaper kind of there character. really was but why also like they were also finding great actresses and actors to kind of live these parts and yeah. play these parts and, yeah. and i i so that one always stuck with me. I always really loved that one. Sounds like a good one. Yes. I'm going to watch that one for sure. Yeah, that one's great. I, I highly recommend that to people as well. And just a few others before before we get into what all this means, I just want to touch on a few other episodes. Yeah. The the one I, that I think is earliest in the run that resonates with me most, other than Time Enough at Last, is I Shot an Arrow into the Air. Oh, you were telling me. But so tell me more about this So one. I Shot an Arrow into the Air is like really interesting. And actually in the compendium that I was reading that I, that I was given by a friend of mine, it says that this was Rod Sterling was saying later that this was an episode idea that he literally bought on the spot from someone who was just like, what if this happened? Oh, I love that. There was nothing written. Or nothing written. Like no, just an idea. Someone like one of his friends or a passerby or something was like, what if there was this these astronauts? Because the premise is, what if these astronauts think they're going somewhere, but they actually crash land and they didn't cr they crash land on Earth? And they all turn on each other because they think they're all dying on this foreign and this on this foreign object, but they actually never left. And that's what the story's about, and I love it. So it's about how eight astronauts take off and they're going to like an asteroid for some reason, and then it crashes and five of them die, and there are three of them left alive. And how the three of them all are turning on each other because they there's only so much water and power. They have like a gun with a few pieces of ammo, and they start kind of working their way around, and then they realize that they're on Earth. And that they're actually like in the deserts of, of the United States, like right outside of Las Vegas. Wow. And I always loved that episode because that was the one that encapsulated the whole twist. Where I was like, ah. Yeah, I the see, twist I see, is I inherent in that idea. Sure. The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is obviously a famous episode of Twilight Zone. If you guys aren't familiar with that one, I, I love that one. It's about how aliens come to Earth and manipulate humans into turning on each other so they don't have to do anything. One of the great episodes. So the, 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 the way they do it is... And you assume that this is happening across the planet, but you don't really. You're only really shown that glimpse of like yeah, the, sliver. The, the, the craft landing nearby, and the the aliens are basically shutting down all the electronics and all the the, the mechanical devices, but then slowly turn on like this guy's house lights, and then turn on this guy's car, and all this kind of stuff. And everyone thinks everyone's lying to each other, and the aliens' ultimate goal is to just have them all turn on each other, so they just can basically take Earth without having to worry about yeah, without having to lift a finger, but really. by just manipulating. The worst instincts in humans. To, it's to, so to sinister not trust and simple. I love it. So that's a, a really great episode. I have the Beholders, another really famous episode that you might have heard of and that I really love. Th that is one of the rare episodes that has a political theme, and the political theme is Orwellian. It's a, it's about a totalitarian dictatorship of some sort. You only really get little bits of the taste of the state in it, but it's about a hospital where these two people are undergoing a man and a woman are undergoing surgery on their faces because they've had some sort of horrifying they look horrific compared to everyone else but you realize they're actually beautiful and that everyone else is around them is, is like terrifying and that they're trying to <laughs> manipulate and change them to fit their mold so that they don't feel bad it's, it's that's a famous episode is that one written by rod sterling i don't that know episode, I, I can actually consult the compendium a lot of them were and he was he was involved in writing all of them even if he didn't 
Uh, yeah, he wrote Eye of the Beholder. Okay. Produced by Buck Houghton. Yeah, so he wrote that it. That may be... I know we said Time Enough at Last, which of course is a classic, but Eye of the Beholder may be the iconic Twilight Zone episode. I'm glad you brought that one up. I actually didn't bring that one up because of its... People usually... You recognize it and we're trying to be... We're trying to go a little bit outside the lines so to speak sure but that's a that's a must-see that's a must if there's a must-see episode i might even say that's the must-see episode sure I, I i agree with you because i think that what's what's fun about the twilight zone is the anxiety it builds in you yeah from 59 to 64 or whatever during the height of the cold war during a really dangerous time in the cold war actually the the dates overlap with things like the cuban missile crisis and the bay of pigs when things that was the crescendo of the cold war when we really actually thought we were going to come to blows Good point. with the soviet union and we were really you know at you know a couple times moments away from launching nuclear weapons <laughs> and so it plays on your anxiety but what i what i love about it is it plays on your anxiety a sort of generalized anxiety based on the episode that you're watching where it doesn't it's not often political it's not often about the soviet union it's not often about anything like that yeah but this episode i think is about the soviet union and or at least some sort of orwellian like i said some sort of orwellian totalitarian i love that i never even made that connection but you were absolutely right about that but it's almost that's almost the disappointing part of it too is that i don't know that it really needed those political overtones for it to work and that part of what made it clever was kind of taking advantage of the contemporary anxiety about the situation without ever like you're afraid of death because of nuclear weapons so we're going to tell you a story about a guy who is in a bank vault during a nuclear blast right you know? And we're gonna shatter your expectations in a different way. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't get radio. He's not. It's not radiation yeah. that he dies from. It's a similar thing with the with the the one I was just talking about about the arrow shot into the air, where it doesn't really make any sense. They should know they're not on. They're breathing air. They're the same gravity. Like none of that makes any sense. If you yeah. were on an asteroid, you'd be able to jump fifty feet into the air. You'd have to have a spacesuit on it because you're in a vacuum of space. So none of it really makes any sense. It's literally taking advantage of just anxiety where you just like you're worried about. People turning on each other. McCarthyism was huge at that time. You yeah. know, we were just coming off of that. So they play cleverly on these political themes without being overt about them. And that's one of the only episodes where, in my mind, the, the political themes are very overt. Yeah, that's interesting. That really is. Yeah. So I wanted to do this episode with you, Dagan. And yeah. I think it's going to be a shorter episode, but I'm not entirely sure. We'll, we'll be up to that. I wanted to do cool. it for two reasons. One is, again, what I said earlier about turning people on to something we, you and I both really love in The Twilight Zone. Something that I think is inspirational for creative people to watch. And I know that there are a lot of creative people listening to this show that are more right-brained, that are inclined to write or to draw. Absolutely, sure. I'm sure I'm sure. Create music, that. whatever the case might be, that yeah. all combines into these beautiful pieces that we, we enjoy to this day. But the other reason is because it reminds me of your love of, again, the short story and your love of science fiction and kind of these interesting stories. And it reminds me of a story that you probably don't remember, but I remember very clearly. It's one of those, it's one of those indelible things that happens to a person or... Yeah that never goes away, but that no one else involved would ever think about again. All right. And I was in ninth grade, and we were going, you, me, Allie, and Dad, Allie's one of our sisters, were going to Aunt Christine's okay. and Uncle Walter's. Okay. Um, Uncle Walter, not from the Ben Folds 5 song. <laughs> and uh, great song, though. Great song. But we were going there in Port Jefferson and on Long Island, and you were telling me about a Ray Bradbury short story that I ended up loving about how the aliens were manipulating children to like steal. Like they were, it looked like the kids were playing alien assault or something like they were 
but they weren't. They were the only ones that could see these aliens, and they were like bringing them shit and like doing all sorts of weird yes. stuff. And how frightened that made me. It was dark. It was like a dark, cloudy day on Long Island. And yeah. It was nighttime, and I was like really frightened by the story you were talking about. And I went and read <laughs> the whole you know book that it came from, and it invigorated this sort of love of short storytelling and of Ray Bradbury and 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 later Vonnegut and all these kinds of things that are kind of I think parallel to to the you know maybe a little bit more accessible and stranger things. Sirens of Titan is my favorite Vonnegut book, which is a strange, which is a, which is no one's favorite Vonnegut book. So right, but it's, but it's like the one of the most sci-fi writings that he did. Right. And I just that reminds me of you. So when I was looking at the list of things wow. that we could possibly do for the show, yeah, the first eight topics, I'm like, we should do something on the Twilight Zone because it's parallel enough to, you know, Bradbury and these short stories sure. and the creativity that I think is kind of endemic in this particular community. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Bradbury had a huge effect, uh, a huge impact on Rod Serling. And Ray Bradbury, we were talking about earlier, apparently he tried to write at least three or four things for Rod for the show. And they just, we were saying earlier, they just found, Rod Serling just found that his Ray Bradbury stuff, though brilliant, of course, wasn't, just wasn't translating to the screen like they wanted to. So I think they ended up rejecting at least three scripts from Bradbury. They used one. Yeah, Bradbury, I think my arc, well, you know what's funny about that? I remember that day, but I don't remember telling you that story, but I could, I could actually say that Bradbury got his stories burrowed down into my psyche and oftentimes pretty chilling and frightening. Not only that story, but a couple of others, maybe from the Illustrated Man or some other some other collections of his works. Huge impact on me as a writer and just just for sci-fi storytelling. But what that was probably me trying to do some therapy on myself by telling somebody something that frightened me. Right. You right. know, it's like, oh, check this out. Like, you know, this is actually this creepy story. Because he that his stuff really did burrow itself into my psyche. And you know what happened? My arc with Bradbury, I think comes down to again in high school what had what had happened to me in high school is like I was on an art track from very early not even in high school of my life grandpa was like a very frustrated was a frustrated cartoonist an artist who never really got a chance to pursue it professionally but was good enough to and he taught me from a very early age like how to draw Mickey Mouse I was age five he taught me how to draw Mickey Mouse and my arc and love affair with cartoons and animation started very early in life I always knew what I wanted to do and when I was in high school, I was on an art, a serious art track. Like my art teacher pulled me aside and was like, I, I hear you're, you know, you're serious about art. I'm going to be on your ass. Like he was a really tough individual, very talented, but very tough. So I was on this very serious art track. I knew what I wanted to do. I was very serious about it, actually. And when I got into creative writing, I think I was a sophomore in high school, my English teacher, Mrs. Parry again, Miss Parry pulled me aside after reading a couple of my things and was, you know, basically told me, like, I know you're an artist. She was friends with my art teacher, good friends with my art teacher. I know you're an artist. I know you're really serious about art and becoming an animator and all that. But you're, she told me, you're a writer, but you're a writer. And she just kind of planted that seed in my head. And she would actually take me outside of school on her own time to poetry readings and stuff like that. I mean, she was very serious about building me as a writer and took a lot of care and time to show me what I could do with that. And I never, I, you know, of course I graduated from high school. I went to art school. I, I went right into animation school. And then the same exact thing happened to me in college. I had a creative, I don't know if I ever told you this. I had a creative writing teacher, which was an elective because I was on an animation track in high school. 
I mean, in college. And I was, I went to the Art Institute of Philadelphia. It was much more of a commercial art school. It wasn't a, it wasn't a traditional art school in any sense. It was a, you know, made to like put you on the assembly line, get you ready for a career and put you out into the workplace. You know, I'm not saying that was good or bad. I'm just saying what it was. So I had certain electives that I took, art history, history of film, and I took a creative writing class because I always loved to write. And my, my creative writing teacher in college took, did the same exact thing to me, took me aside. I was like, I know you love to draw. I know you love to animate and you're an animator, but you, you, you're a writer. You have a really unique voice, she told me. And I was writing some short stories and submitting them to the New Yorker. I wasn't good enough to be in the New Yorker, but I was doing that. And one of my early influences from Miss Parry in high school was she turned me on to Ray Bradbury because then in AP English in 11th grade, we were reading things like The Sound and the Fury. All the, you know, a lot of the books actually on the, I want to say the forbidden books list, the banned books list. Right, right. We were reading a lot of that stuff. The Bible was on there. We were reading like some heavy stuff. She turned me on to things that we wouldn't have read in there like Ray Bradbury. She's, I guess her, my writing sort of reminded her of that. I had a very typical, I wasn't, a, I, looking back, I don't know how I was anything special in high school. I was, you know, Edgar Allan Poe. It was all the typical high school stuff that I was inspired by. But she saw something in me. And she turned me on to Bradbury, and that's how I ended up turning, you know, you on to Bradbury. So that's that's the arc that it sort of took. And the Twilight Zone, very similar thing, just took a really big impact on me as a writer, as far as tone and misdirection and building tension and fleshing out an idea and pacing and dialogue. It really, the Twilight Zone, Ray Bradbury, and speaking especially this episode, the Twilight Zone spoke to me as a writer and crafted me as a writer just as much as the great writers, just as much as Hemingway, just as much as any of that stuff. You know, I think the show is that good. You know, I think the show is that. And I'm, I'm, saying, I'm not saying you have to be a writer or an aspiring writer or a would-be writer to enjoy The Twilight Zone, but it always felt the most to me like writing and specifically writing short stories, which I have a lo- real love for. I think short stories is... There's something about writing a short story. It's like you don't have a lot of time. You have to get in and you have to get out. No smoke, no mirrors. You have to say what you're going to say. Do it in a way with your craft and what you know. Get out and leave, an, and leave something resonating in the, in the reader's head. And The Twilight Zone feels like that to me, more than any other show. And I want to do a show on Black Mirror. Unfortunately, I have to plead the fifth for now because I haven't seen enough of it. And you turned me on to that. And yeah, I've I mean, only seen three episodes so far, not even two and a half. I'm I enamored asleep. with Black Mirror. It's, it's, it seems like it's going to be that good. So stay, stay tuned for that. I think you would, you would love to do that, right? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, we can even I, I, we can do multiple episodes on, the Black, on, Black, on Black Mirror episodes. So that's, yeah. I'm verbose when I write. So short stories are fun to read and they're yeah. inspirational. But I'm not great at writing them. Be, and, I've, and again, I've, as I said earlier, I kind of uh, walked away from even trying to write them because I... You do have to be very judicious in in the information you give. It's like when yeah. I used to write at IGN, and you know you have to cut two hundred words out of a piece. You I really... think you would be good at it. Well, I, I might be. I mean, I have ideas for them. Yeah, yeah. But I've always been much more inclined to writing long form stuff, which is why I've still not written a you know full book because I I need to I, I feel this need to write like four hundred pages. And obviously, you know some of my some of my favorite stories like we were talking about the road Cormac McCarthy not too long ago and that's not a long book at all so and I, and I love that book and that book really doesn't tell you anything about what happens and nothing about the extraneous you know the, the, the any of the extraneous shit apart from the father and son really nothing else matters so yeah it's not like I don't, I don't take to that sort of stuff but there are other books 
Atlas Shrugged is one of my favorite books, and that's one of the longest novels I've ever written. So, and it unnecessarily long, where you could probably actually cut a third of it out, it would be fine. Right. So, I like to defer more towards you know exploring a world and kind of and that kind of stuff, and that that might be kind of hindering me from actually getting anything out. No, I think you have to work with that. Just get that out first, and then see. Yeah, we yeah, we but because you're built for that anyway. We have to, you know, at least I have to give credit to. The Twilight Zone, and then again, it's funny, Miss Parry. It would be fun to like talk to her one day. It so, really would be because she was really. It was funny how inspirational she was, and how we both had her. We both had her for the same classes. I had her for honors yeah. English and AP English, and you had her for the same. And we, for some reason, she, I just took to her. And yeah. a lot of the stuff, whether it's Fahrenheit four fifty one or, like I said, Catch twenty two, yeah, stuff like that, where uh, Brave New World, yes, where I. A lot of my favorite books came from that those classes. Yeah, and she so, liked sci-fi. Yeah, she did. She did. She really did. She did. And and you know, and I love it too. Yeah. And I guess that's the funny thing is that I you know I get frustrated when whether it's with Twilight Zone, but more with like Battlestar Galactica and stuff that I think is really really good. Where people are like it's sci-fi. Like Aaron does that where it's like it's science fiction. And I'm like it's not. It doesn't matter. Right. And that was another one of the brilliant things about Twilight Zone is even. And Black Mirror, there's a, there's some super sci-fi episodes of Black Mirror, including one called USS McAllister, which uh, or USS I'm sorry USS Callister that I don't think you've seen yet. No, that's like I super haven't. sci-fi. But it's just the setting, right? As long as it's done right, yeah, it doesn't really matter what what it is or what, where not. it takes place and stuff like that. If it's still based on character and dialogue and stuff, and I think that that's what Twilight Zone really excelled at was again democratizing this idea that you don't have to be this nerd, this pulp fiction you know book flipping nerd getting yeah. his 25 cent novel for the week and he reads you know engineering magazines and shit like that you don't that, that's not necessary to get something out of twilight zone in fact i don't think it's necessary or prerequisite at all yeah and i think that's what makes it so ubiquitous and so beautiful and i'm interested in in what you were saying earlier and how this is segueing more towards a, a, a an episode or a kind of a dual episode about writing and kind yeah. of creativity how do you how do you create because you said something that really it was interesting to me. I, yeah. I, not anymore, I guess, but I was a professional writer for 10 years. Right. And more, more than that, if you count my freelance. And I find writing extremely difficult. Yes. Like, it's it's not, I think, I, I, there are a few things I would say about myself where I'm like, you know, I'm great at this or I'm, you know, I really excel at this. I think I'm a great writer. And, and I, 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 it's not because of what you, it's not because of what ends up on the paper at the end it's that like i get through these mental hurdles to be able to write something and to put I, something down that i think is readable and stuff and i always and i always look to create and to improve i, I n- i've never read anything i've written where i'm like that's great right and in fact some of the stuff that i look back on and i'm like that's really good is stuff i wrote when i was in high school right compared to stuff that i wrote when i was at ign or something where i read something i wrote when i was 16 sometimes and i'm like that's actually pretty good no you're a gifted writer. um but I, I love that idea that you brought up of because I think that the reason I'm, I, I consider myself good or great at writing and that's like kind of the, the, my talent yeah is because I'm able to overcome those hurdles that that I, I that. that I'm locked down usually and have a really hard time um, you know someone can tell me I need a thousand words on this game or whatever I'm like all right that's easy I can I can bang that out I'm a prolific verbose writer like I said in terms of, of volume if yeah. I know what I need to do but if I need to sit down and be creative it's got to be a real deliberate process and it's I could just sit there with a pen in my hand and a, and a notepad and like have nothing because I'm like I don't know where to begin I don't know where to start so how yeah. what do you mean by by having a, what does it mean to have a prolific output of how do you do that I I I really appreciate that you said that I think you that's that's awesome that you said that actually first of all that makes a lot of sense I think writing is actually hard 
I, I do think it's difficult. And it's funny. It reminds me of some, another writer that I, I really admired and had a huge impact on me going as far back as I can remember was Judy Bloom. And she has a master class recently. And she said, very prolific. She's been writing for a long time. She said, I don't consider myself a great writer, but she considers herself a great rewriter. And writing for her is like a struggle, tooth and nail, every step of the way from A to Z. And I think most writers would tell you that. And I don't think that, I don't think writing comes, I think I think basically writing doesn't come easy to me necessarily. I do think it's hard actually, but I could write, sit down and well, let me put it to you this way. I'll put it to you this way in terms of, in context of art for me. Art was something that I really had to struggle with. I was never like, I would say even that I was never the best artist in the class from kindergarten through being a senior in high school. I, I was never the best artist in the class, but I loved it enough to work at it. And I always knew I wanted to do it. So I made sure that my work was up to snuff to this day. You know what I mean? It was a lot of, and art was a lot of finding my voice. Because even when I got into college, I took a year off between high school and college. So I didn't start art school until I was 20. And even at that point, I was drawing anime. I wasn't doing what I did now and have my own voice and my own style. That was something that was informed by everything a culmination of everything that I grew up with every step of the way. Writing almost for me was weird because it was almost like, all right, I could write. I was in high school already before I was interested in writing. And I, as soon as I was turned on to it in creative writing class, I could sit down. I could learn all the rules. I could learn about structuring a short story, writing a poem. Well, let's take it in, in context of short stories because that's mostly what I wrote and still write. I could learn how to structure something. I could learn all the devices, you know, from um, similes to onomatopoeia to, you know, foreshadowing. I could, I know all that stuff. I know all the rules. But when I sit down to write, I just write and it just flows. And by the time I'm done writing a four page short story, for some reason, all that stuff is in there even though all I was doing was writing. I wasn't concentrating on, okay, this is where I have to build and this is where I have to kind of reach the Danumont and this is where I have to read. You know what I mean? It just comes out that way. When I write, it comes out that way. So there's something just, there's just an inherent ability to do that that I don't have with art. You know what I mean? Art is a very, is much more thoughtful for me and I have to think about it. And But the one thing I will say that's similar for me between art and writing is that it's always sparked by something that inspires me, it could be very small. A, a short story for me could be sparked by a word that I hear. And then I build around that word and just build it out. Like it's the seed of an apple and I'm building the apple around it. It's odd. Art is, starts the same way for me. You know, I could, be, I could be like, oh, you know, I, you know, I love the color in that person's, uh, this graffiti piece on the wall. And then that sparks something and I do, you know, that's the small spark that leads to something bigger, you know. So for, but art was always more of a struggle for me. Even today, like I see, you know, if somebody enjoys my art or compliments me or something, all I see is the the 10 people that I think are so much better than me at it. You know, at my level, my age, working in animation, maybe I'm at Sesame Workshop and they're at Nickelodeon. You know what I mean? That's all I see. Writing is something, but also with me, I have to say, I have to be honest, I've done much less writing than I've done art. 
So I'm much less prolific of a writer as I am an artist. But for some reason, yeah, for some reason, yeah, writing was never a struggle for me. I could sit down and write something and it just flows out, you know, and then when I when I'm finished reading it, all that stuff is in there that I never really had to think of or consider, you know, it just flowed out of me. Um, It would be interesting to do more writing. I wish there's, there's a part of me that wish I kind of pursued it more on a professional level, even though I'm able to I'm lucky enough in my workplace to, um, you know, pitch show ideas or pitch things for a YouTube short or something, you know. But I appreciate that you said that because, um, but also I think what you write, you have such a, you have such a wonderful voice in your writing, Kyle. That's one thing that you you have such a wonderful voice and I don't know, there's just, there's just such a wonderful craft to your writing that you, you do make it look easy. I would never think, I would never read something you wrote and say, oh, he, he really struggled with that. You know, I think that's the mark of a good writer. But I might struggle with writing more journalistic stuff like you write. In a way, that might even be a lot harder than making it. Because there's a lot of flowery things you could do, whether inadvertently or on purpose, to, you know, sort of make something look interesting. You're writing a short story. You have There's a lot of leeway in writing fiction. You know, journalistic content, that's, a, that's something else. And you're trying to make journal. You're trying to make journalistic content as interesting as a work of fiction. I I, I might not be good at that. Right. Yeah. There are definitely different kinds of writing. I'm all, so, I, I was a technical writer for a long time too. So it's and technical writing sucks. But you started that way. Actually. Yeah. I mean, that's how I started, and, and it's it's it definitely it definitely gives you solid foundation from which to work. And but I'm more inspired by what I read, and then you know. I'm often, it's funny because it's a double-edged sword in the sense that I, I read something and I'm like, this is inspirational and also deflating. It's like, wow, this is so good. But that's the curse of the writer. and Yeah, that's the curse of the artist. Yeah, I I, I, th- I think so. I, I, and I've never been ashamed of that. I could always improve. Like I, like I said, I never have looked at anything I've ever done ever and been like, yeah, this is as good as it's going to be. Or right. as good as it can be. It's as good as it is going to be. But it's, it, it's but it could, it could not be better. And I... I I take a certain amount of pride in that too because I know that everything I put out is somehow flawed and that's just the way it is. But I do get upset. Like you were saying, you said earlier, writing is hard. And I I, I like that you said that. And I, I think that that's true because I hate when people think that writing is – because everyone knows how to read and write yeah. in a literate society. Right. Everyone think you know, we don't we don't come up in, in, in school being like, you got to learn – you know how to read and write and you got to learn how to paint and you got to learn how to you know build a house right. and all it's like no if someone knows how to build a house that's a skill right and if someone knows how to paint that's a skill and just because you know how to read and you know how to write doesn't mean you know how to write there and it's it's uh it's the same thing with like we all learn arithmetic doesn't mean I'm a mathematician right and it's i hate the how people approach it as being like writing is the lowest common denominator sort of craft and i'm like it's really not yeah and right it does take a certain amount of uh, skill and wherewithal to be able to do it professionally and do it for a living. Oh, my and God. And it's difficult. And I, I give you a lot of credit for being able to do it so prolifically. I'm always, for instance, I'm always so impressed with your Instagram account, which we'll pimp at the end, as we always do at the end of the show, <laughs> about how much you draw, how much you, you how many ideas go on. I'm like, what do you, how do you even uh, I appreciate do it? That, you know, Kyle. That's very kind to say and that. And so to know that you're doing this with writing too, and I didn't, unbeknownst to me, basically, is uh, scary in a sense because that, that's a real creative that's a real creative powerhouse you're working with uh, within your within you you know to, I appreciate to be able to that. do that yeah I don't know I'm I'm probably very rusty as a writer as well I I'll tell you that I do have a lot of ideas that the idea thing comes naturally to me I think that's just inherently who I am I'm just constantly out there 
you know, not even probably just inadvertently just always sponging things for ideas. And I have reams and reams. I don't keep a notebook or even a sketchbook. I never have. But I have reams and reams of post-it notes and typing paper of just ideas. It might be an idea for an illustration I want to do or a painting, which I don't do very much of anymore, but I like to get back into it. Um, or a, a short story I'd like to write or a cartoon series I'm imagining or, you, you know, I'm working on a couple of things that I'd like to do for YouTube. I think that's just part of who I am. I can't shut it off, you know, nor do I want to shut it off. You know, it's just part of what makes me happy. And just the same thing as drawing on Instagram. I don't think everything I draw is by, by no means a masterpiece, but it's just part of who I am. I love to draw and I love to create. I've always been the same too. I don't know if this means anything or if this is even relevant, but I've never liked to, to create in a vacuum, which is why I, I think I like being a commercial artist. Even though I was told in high school that that was shit. Like you, if you want to be a commercial artist like that shit, like you should be a fine artist. I like to create things and share them with people. I did the same thing. Mom and dad know very well. I love to draw things. I would draw something just so I could show them it. That, if that means anything. I love, to, I love to draw something and share my thoughts and share what I'm joyful about with people. Um, and I do have a very joyful bent towards creativity. I think sometimes like, and I, did, I think even psychologically, I get down on myself. Like, you're not being really an artist because you're not really exploring sadness or anger or any of those things that you feel that I feel just like everybody else feels. I think art's more therapy for me at this point in my life. I want to do the things that I'm up about, that I'm positive about, that I'm excited about, that I'm hopeful about. And the same thing with writing, I think. But with writing, with me, honestly, it's more ideas that never get to be fleshed out. Even with Kind of Funny, the animated series, I would take a script and then I was starting from the storyboard stage, you know, so I wasn't doing a lot of, I wasn't doing any writing during that period. So I think really with writing for me, it's more of ideas and you should get to this, write a short story. I do love the short story format because that's such a huge impact on me as a, as a young writer who aspired to write stuff. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So I'm not sure how great I would be going back into it, you know. I've all, I really admire your writing. You're one of the writers I really admire, and you're one of the writers who really inspire me because your stuff almost feels like I derive as much joy from your stuff as a work of fiction because your voice is so inherent in, in the piece and just the way it's, it doesn't, it's the opposite of technical. Even though what you're writing about is, is journalistic content. Let's say we were writing a game review or something that you've written relatively recently that was of a, a was of a journalistic nature. It doesn't feel like that to me. And I think that's the mark of a good writer. Even certain certain sports writers or or certain people that I've derived pleasure from reading their work. What would be really cool is if you and I co-write something together. Which we explored a little bit. We never really got anywhere because this stuff just got busy. You remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean it was with the, 15 with the, years ago. Probably. Yeah, yeah, which was fun. Yeah, it was and we could revisit that idea. It's a yeah, we we did try that and it was fun. It was it was inspirational. I always I always uh I respect the shit out of the fact that you we come from a pretty talented family. I would we say. Do. I'm not saying that just cuz I'm part of it, but We're lucky. We are and I I we are. You know, Dana has a real literary mind. Can write although doesn't choose to. Uh Allie Yeah, she should. Yeah, I don't really you know, for someone that reads as much as she does, she her stuff would pop off the page. She probably has plenty of ideas, but you know, she has three kids and a profession and all that kind of yeah, stuff. And, and not, not a super, not a lot of inclination to do that. And I respect that. Allie's obviously a great artist and came into it late. That's the, that's my favorite part about yeah. Allie is that she's proof that you don't have to be 
coming out of the womb or even in elementary school or even in middle school and not even maybe even part of high school yeah. with an inclination towards art. Allie went to FIT, which is a prolific art school in New York City, for fashion design. Yeah. Very and hard ended up doing school. package design instead, like yeah. toy packages to design and really talented at that. And now she, and then got her you know master's in art history, I think. And then you know she's an art teacher now, but she she has she's actually pretty multidisciplined, which is cool. Yeah. And, and we, she loves art. Right. Very passionate. And she, I, I feel like, I mean, maybe I was just missing it as a kid, but I don't think so. She really just bloomed into an, an artist late. Yeah, she did. My wife was the same way, actually. Who's a, and your wife's a very, also an art teacher and a very talented painter. Ten times more talented at art than I am. I will honestly say that. You know, she's just, she, she was a commercial illustrator and a freelance illustrator and decided to pursue, you know, her passions of art as being an art teacher. But yeah, super talented. Uh, you know, I'm not just saying that. Like, she she could really draw and paint. She's the type that doesn't need... She's one of those rare talents that found it late and went to art school and then went to get... You know, then went on to get her master's degree. But one of those types that I can't even relate to with art where she doesn't miss a step. She doesn't have to do a painting or a drawing in a year. She'll do a painting and a drawing. It's like she never missed a step. She doesn't get rusty. You know, she might not see that, but it's very easy to see. Like, you know, you know... you. An artist recognizes that talent in another artist. I don't have that. If I stop drawing for two days, I get rusty. So, yeah. So we we do really have a talented family. We're really, uh, you know, really submerged in that. Yeah, and in the the right brain culture of uh, none of us are doctors, scientists. (laughs) Fortunately. But uh, but writers and artists and painters and, you know, animators and and all of this. And, yeah, Helene is talented. When I went to your house last over the summer, she she took a year sabbatical and she was painting a ton and she showed me a bunch of her stuff. And I was like, this is excellent. She's so good. And I've always been so envious of that because there were times in my life, as you probably remember, where I'm like, I really want to learn, you know, inspired by you and inspired by my love of video games and whatever cartoons as a kid. The idea of, you know, I want to be an artist. It can't be that hard. Right. Like, that's like, it can't be that hard to draw. It can't be that hard to have that style. And for me, I just can't do it. You know, like I, I just, never knew that you really tried to do that. Oh, yes. There were several waves of me, like eighth grade and like ninth, tenth grade. Like I tried, you know, yeah. I really, it was like I had no passion for it, though, at the end of the day, if you really think about it, you know, in hindsight. That's the thing. But I also was just like, it's because I wasn't good at it. And I think that was, you know, I, writing comes, I writing is hard for me. But it also the, the the technical nature of writing comes naturally to me. Like, I don't have to worry about syntax and all this kind of shit. I understand how sentences are constructed, right? And, and I have a vocabulary. And I don't have to really dig deep to put something legible on the paper. That's interesting. And with with art, I think it was just that I didn't, I wasn't good at it yeah. from the, from the beginning, and I wasn't getting any better in the very rudimentary way I was trying. So I just gave up on it. That's interesting. You didn't have that spark of encouragement like I had, Grandpa. By the time you were old enough to be into that, he was already past. You know, so it's that's important. That's really formative because if you had that, you might have had. But it also does come down to what you want to do, passion at the end of the day. Because if I didn't have that passion to succeed at art, I wouldn't have even done it because I didn't have that talent. I had to really work at it. You know, I had to. I might have been born with a modicum of talent, but not as much talent as a lot of other artists that I know that do it professionally. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So that's a really yeah that you said that is very important. That encouragement, that little spark of encouragement, could be the difference. You know. That's interesting, and I think I, I think I, um, I think inadvertently got the spark of encouragement to be a writer, just by just exposure. Mom and dad are both, especially dad, are both very voracious readers. So yeah, um, dad, dad just ton of books in the house at all times, always yeah. reading. And I think that, and also really into creative thing like fantasy and so. I mean, he was really the he was a huge Tolkien fan when when that wasn't 
you know, that's who turned like, me on to those books. You know, sure. When he was a kid, basically, yeah. when he was a teenager and in his twenties, yeah, he was a Tolkien fan, and he's you know in his sixties now. So that was long before the Tolkien zeitgeist. Yeah, uh, I would have never read those books if it was for mom. Right, I remember actually being in that. You know, in our old house, they had our parents had like a huge bedroom and then a dressing room and then their own bathroom. It was kind of and and in yeah. that, I, I just I very specifically remember that there was this piece of furniture in the corner of their dressing room where he had his Tolkien books on them only, and like this the trilogy. Yeah, not even not even the Hobbit. You're right, right. And I just remember that being there, and it was always you know I was way too young to read them at the time, but I remember kind of being enamored with them. And then I read you know before the movies came out, or were even you know kind of we even knew they were coming. That's when I started reading them in, in early high school. Yeah, and so I think maybe I had that little push from him, without him knowing it and without me knowing it, just being surrounded by books because he's right. a reader and he doesn't write, so it's not like I don't know if Dad can write. Maybe he can. Yeah, I think I think. But mom and dad could both write. You even see that they could write. You know, you could even notice that in somebody when they write you a birthday card. You know what I mean? Like they, there's just something inherent. They might not consider themselves writers by any means, but you could see that there's a, there's something there that, that, that they could be writers, you know, which is probably, you know, that might be where we get it from. You know, just because you, you don't pursue something doesn't mean that talent is that latent talent is not there somewhere. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. And they did turn me on to books as well. Not only the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but things like, as a young kid, like Watership Down. Like, I remember sure. them being so excited. I'll get more into Watership Down. <laughs> get more into Watership Down when we do our movies we watched too young episode. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, Watership Down. You know, they were really excited to share those things. You know, like, you have to read this book. I might have been nine years old. You know, but they were, they knew, you know, they knew that it was something special. You know, I think I might actually have their copy of Watership down on the shelf. Oh, right that's too. cool. Really? Is it over there? Yeah, it might be. It's probably in there somewhere. Oh, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, no, it is. One of the things I remember you coming up with that an idea you were excited about that I felt really bad about because I was like, this has been done already and you don't know. I don't know if you remember this is when you were, you were describing to me, I was in high school, I think, or maybe okay. even earlier and you were describing this like, these like woodland creatures, yes. have this sort of kingdom kind yep. of thing. And I'm like, dude. Ryan Jacques has like nine books about oh with you, Redwall and all Redwall that kind of yeah yeah you turn me on to those yeah which are excellent excellent yeah. books yeah but I, that's like a, a real memory of me for and I really highly recommend those books even to adults but those um, are good like uh, Madame Ayo and Salamander Strom and stuff those are like really really great books and uh, Mariel of Redwall I think was one of them yeah there's a lot of them and, yeah but I remember you telling me this idea and I'm like yeah I started writing that yeah and I was like in college I think and I'm like I. I I think you're writing Redwall. Yeah, it sound it was very yeah. similar to that, and it really came out of Watership Down, right? You know? Which is you know obviously similar. Yeah, but uh, yeah, this episode went in a different direction, which I think is nice. Which is, and I think I have a different title and idea for it now because it's not only about Twilight Zone for us and and the inspiration of this sci-fi, yeah, you know, the sci-fi anthology, right? But I think what inspires us and like why we are inspired by what's around us and the writing and the creativity that kind of flows and ebbs through everything that we that we kind of digest and i think that, that there's something inherently inspirational just about that about the idea that everything's kind of built off of everything else right i think ron howard was the one that said there's like five story ideas or something like that like there's like no almost no yeah. unique stories to be told right it's just like kind of the way you kind of take on those things and what flows through you. And I think that right. for people out there that really want to be creative or want to kind of tap into that creativity, like I always say that living in San Francisco is really create creatively stimulating for me because of the cloudiness and the rain and the dreariness, which I find super inspirational. Yeah. A lot of people do. 
That's and, a uh, that's a good that's a good point. And I think it's as simple as the fact that like if you're sitting in front of a television playing a video game or writing in front of your computer and it's sunny and 90 degrees out, you, yeah. you kind of feel like you're wasting time and being judged and you're judging yourself and Absolutely. For, for the weather to be like, you know, for for you to have like Pacific Northwest style weather would be perfect for me for creativity. And so it's cool for us to be able to pass on the Twilight Zone as just this thing that should that should hopefully spur something in you. Yeah. And so I hope that you guys out there and gals out there decide if you've not watched it to give it a go. Go with some of our episode recommendations, but just jump in. There's a bunch of different episodes on Netflix. You know, all of them are on Netflix, and you can just go through the descriptions. And if any of them strike you, give them a go. And especially if you're watching Black Mirror today, I think you're really, really going to find a lot to like. Yeah. In what clearly inspired Black Mirror. Yes. Yes. For sure. For sure. Dagan, that was a fun and unusual episode. I had I a great it. time. Yeah, it was a great talk. And uh, I hope you all enjoyed it out there as well. Remember. You can follow us on social media. I'm at Twitter at No Taxation and Instagram at C- what is it? Uh, CLS Moriarty. And uh, Dagan is over at Twitter at Dagan D A G A N 1973. <laughs> you have another age joke? No, I'm 44. Uh, Forget. It. Let us just come to terms with it. And uh, Dagan likes to draw is his uh, handle on Instagram. And remember, of course, you can support Collins Last Stand over at Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/CollinsLastStand at all sorts of different tiers, and you can get all sorts of different perks for supporting us there. We are independent, and we need your support, so please do consider it. At the $5 and up uh, level, for instance, every month you will get this show, every episode of the show, six days early, so maybe maybe consider it. Dagan, thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Everyone out there, thank you for your time and consideration, as always. We will see you next time. Goodbye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Ahmed Alloways, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Bran, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Louise Cancado, Max Cannon, Matthew Canoy, Cesar Cardoso, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Enrique Cezina, Jay Shandarlis, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Benjamin Clark, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Will Curry, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanikos, Luke Drake, Travis Ellison, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fior, James Fitzpatrick, Mike Francis, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Glassford, Ben Gluckman, Tyler Goodwin, David Gurley, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Christopher Hendricks, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Jordan Hood, Joshua Hunt, Steve Innerfield, Stephen Insler, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Juan Lesh, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Devin McMasters, Joe McPartland, Albert Miranda, Mad Mock Media, Alex Moans, Betty Ann Moriarty, Gilliam Mueller, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nixch, Andrew O, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius Scarson Peterson, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Christian Phillips, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, John Quinn, Daxus Rana, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Alex Reyes, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, James Schmetz, James Schubert, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Ray Ann Shinebarger, Toby Schutman, German Sidhu, Alex Simmons, Riley Smith, Jordan Smith, Jared Stuave, Alexander Suarez, Ahmed Tamar, Tam Tran, Oakley Waldron, 
Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Aaron Watts, Michael Wells, Payne White, Tyler Woodall, Benjamin Worrell, Corey Wyatt, James Zimmerman, Steven Sinchevsky, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Barrick, Mubarak, Tynamite, Bowen76, Chris, and Doc2015.